You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Representative Pramila Jayapal joined the Washington Post to discuss her new book and her work to bring change to law enforcement across the country. Let's listen. Good morning. Welcome back to Washington Post Live. I'm Bob Costa, a national political reporter at the Post. Today, we continue our series, Race in America. And we are joined by a lawmaker who is on the front lines of the debates on health care and policing on Capitol Hill and on the front lines of the debates inside the Democratic Party. Representative Pramila Jayapal from Washington State in 2016. Representative Jayapal became the first South Asian American woman to be elected to the House. She is now co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, a power on Capitol Hill, and she is the author of a new book titled Use the Power You Have, A Brown Woman's Guide to Politics and Political Change. Representative Jayapal, welcome to Washington Post Live. It's so great to be with you, Bob. Thanks for having me. Let's begin our conversation on race. And for our viewers, if you're watching, because of COVID-19 and we're all working from home, there may be a slight delay from time to time. So appreciate your patience with us. But on Capitol Hill, Representative, talks between Republicans and Democrats on police reform have stalled. Tell us where things stand. Well, Bob, uh, you know, we did tremendous work in the House with the leadership of the Black Caucus uh, to pass the George Floyd Act, previously called Justice in Policing. And what we were really doing is bringing much needed change and accountability to our law enforcement departments. It did critical things like ban chokeholds, ban no-knock warrants, the kind that were used to kill Breonna Taylor. Um, And it collected data and established a system where if an officer uh, you know, had misconduct charges in one department that you would actually be able to know because that data would be tracked and hopefully that officer wouldn't be hired into another department. But also important, it took a step forward to helping communities reimagine policing by putting grants uh, into black and brown communities across the country to say, you all tell us how can we ensure community safety for everyone? And I think that is a very, very important piece of the conversation that is happening now in places across the country. Because when you have a system where uh, a, a black American walks down the street and sees a cop and turns in the other direction because they are sure that something is going to go wrong, that they too might have a knee on the back of their neck and they might be murdered in five or 10 minutes. When you have a system where black mothers and fathers are having the talk with their children, that is absolutely unacceptable. And so we need to really transform policing in this country and reimagine community safety. And so that was also a piece of the George Floyd Act. And I will never forget seeing Philanese Floyd testify in front of the Judiciary Committee where I sit, where the act went through, um, and hearing him say, do not let George Floyd just be a picture on a T-shirt, a name on your lips, pass real reform. And so we have done that in the House. And now, as you say, we're waiting for the Senate to act. Cory Booker and Kamala Harris have taken the lead uh, on the Democratic side. And I deeply hope 
that the Senate will not do what they normally do, which is abdicate all responsibility to the president and refuse to do things that they as a body should be doing and actually have bipartisan support because the president doesn't like what they're gonna do. So it's up to them now and we are continuing to push and protesters across the country are continuing to participate in uprisings to illustrate the urgency of these demands. As a progressive leader, is there any chance you'd be willing to negotiate a more narrow package on police reform, something that was not in the scope of what you've already passed in the House? Well, you know, as you know, you've covered politics for a while. Um, it is always a, a bargaining process, uh, unfortunately, for some of us, um, because we end up with changes that do not get us to where we need to go. So, of course, there's possibility to negotiate when you have divided government. That has to happen. However, I will just say that um, I have not seen this kind of sustained uh, protest and uh, urgency and, and you know, deep anxiety uh, exhibited in really anything uh, in my lifetime here. And I think that there is a lot of learning and awakening that is happening across the country for, for a lot of people who did not know, for example, the history of law enforcement, the way in which and the reasons why law enforcement was originally established um, for, for police officers to actually capture enslaved people who were trying to be free um, and later to enforce Jim Crow laws. So there is a culture here in law enforcement and a way in which law enforcement has operated that has gone unquestioned. And there has been an increase in budgets um, for law enforcement, actually not dissimilar to what we've seen with the Pentagon budget increases. And I think at this moment of tremendous devastation, you know, economic devastation, so many millions of tens of millions of people who have filed unemployment claims over the last four months, um, added to the 27 million Americans who have lost their health care, that we have to be looking also at how do we best use this money? How do we ensure community safety and how do we invest in our communities so that they have housing um, you know so that they have food so that they have health care and I think that that urgency must translate into whatever we do principled compromise of course it's a part unfortunately of the legislative process we don't get everything we want however it's got to be significant it, it can't just be window dressing that would be completely unacceptable. And so far, that is what the Senate Republicans have offered. And that's why Senate Democrats have said, no, that is not a principal compromise. That will not do anything to fix the urgent situation that desperately requires fixing. Representative, when you speak of reforming budgets on police forces nationwide, what's your view of the calls to defund the police? Well, I think that, you know, there are many, uh, obviously, many ways to look at that. But I think what the protesters I have spoken to and the Movement for Black Lives um, leaders have talked about is exactly what we have been saying, which is that law enforcement as a whole has a culture of brutality that you cannot deny if you look at uh, all of these incidents. And the reality is there's also the truth that a lot of police officers are on the streets dealing with problems that should not be dealt with by community police, by police officers. They should be dealt with by community support people. And so I think that 
when you put police officers on the street and you ask them to deal with mental health, that is not fair to them, but it's also absolutely unfair to our communities. So most of the protesters are calling for a complete transformation of policing. What does that mean? It means, first of all, how do we make sure that everybody is safe? If people, if law enforcement is there to make everybody safe, what are the things that are going to allow for that to happen? And secondly, how do we take out many of the responsibilities that police officers are now dealing with by investing more into housing, into education, into these other things that are frankly the root cause, that austerity spending on those issues are the root cause of why so many people uh, maybe on the streets to start with. And so let's shift uh, significant sums of money from the police department and a law enforcement militaristic approach to things and put it into uh, the, the kinds of things that offer supports to communities that desperately need um, equity and need investment because frankly, we've had institutionalized racism in our country in our systems for a very long time, and it is showing through in full picture now. Let's dig into that idea of reimagining police forces. You represent much of Seattle, which is home to many tech companies. You also recently introduced legislation to ban facial recognition software, arguing that it is weaponized by police departments against Black Americans and other Americans of color. Are fellow Democrats in the House interested in signing on to this legislation? And what about libertarian-minded Republicans? Well, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of bipartisan support for the, um, the issue of facial recognition technology and, and banning or significantly minimizing the use of facial recognition technology. Over the last several years that I've been in Congress, I have consistently offered amendments around facial recognition technology. They have always been bipartisan. I've offered them with uh, uh, members of the Freedom Caucus. Mark Meadows and I actually did several amendments to the NDAA, or maybe it was the intelligence bill last year. Um, and so there is a lot of recognition that this technology uh, has, is, is destructive. And certainly now in this moment of the uprisings across the country and um, the, the view of how technology, including facial recognition technology, is used against black communities, um, I think that there is a lot of openness. The um, tech companies, many of them have actually asked for regulation as well. And so I think that there is a real pathway here to getting something done and to recognizing that facial recognition technology is racist. And the, the problem is you can't justify some of the good uses of the technology and, and say, well, there are some good uses, so it's okay to be racist on these other angles. That, that doesn't work. And that's why I think we need to ban this technology. And I'm proud of that effort with Ayanna Presley in the House is also a co-sponsor. And then in the Senate, led by uh, Senators Markey and Merkley, um, I, I believe there's a path forward here. You mentioned Mark Meadows, who is now the chief of staff to President Trump. Are you in touch in any way with Mr. Meadows about policy? I have not been since he's become chief of staff. Um, you know, there were several articles written in my, my um, first two terms in Congress uh, about our friendship, if you want to call it that. We did interact a lot. We disagreed on many, many, many things. Um, we had a lot of agreements around the areas of civil liberties, in particular um, government surveillance, those kinds of issues. And we've worked in the Progressive Caucus 
with the Freedom Caucus on a number of those issues, and we'll continue to do so. Um, and you know, I, I have not talked to him since he's become chief of staff. In your book, uh, which I read over the weekend, you have a chapter called Why Not Me? And it goes over your career as an activist and your decision ultimately to run for the state Senate. And when I was reading that chapter, Representative, I thought about the Black Lives Matter movement. And do you believe the leaders of that movement now need to run for office if they want to be a long-term force in American politics? Well, I think the thing I was trying to get at in the book is that we really need organizers in every arena. And for a long time, too many organizers, myself included, um, you know, and I write this in the book, we turned up our nose at elected officials because there is a lot of uh, compromise that has to happen in legislation. And sometimes it is easier to be on the outside and to, you know, launch your movement to push the boundaries of what is seen as possible, but not necessarily have to take a vote, not necessarily have to press the button every day on numerous pieces of legislation. But what I have realized is you need organizers everywhere. You need the street heat of the movement. I mean, I firmly believe in that. Um, and I really believe that it is movements of regular folks pushing for what is right and just that makes change happen. At the same time, you need organizers inside elected bodies. You need them in state senates and city councils, and you need them in Congress. And I think that that has not necessarily been something that many organizers felt comfortable with. And I know that when I ran for the state Senate, um, I was the only woman of color in the state Senate, Bob. And when I left to run for, when I won the seat in Congress, I ended my term early and um, I made sure that I recruited another woman of color to run who was also an organizer. And since that time, I'm very proud to say we've not only added more women of color, but more organizers because people started to look at what I was doing and what uh, you know others were doing and said, you know what, I can do this as well. I can be an organizer inside Congress and I can look at, or inside the state Senate, and I can look at this platform as another fantastic platform from which to organize. Um, and so that is, you know, I, I don't think that every single person of the movement for black lives should be running for office because believe me, we need people outside on the streets as well. And we need to really be working to dissolve some of the um, barriers that have existed for people to run for office. But also once you get inside, I've been working to try to build with Mark Pocan a real infrastructure to support our organizing work on the inside through the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center and then with the board of the Congressional Progressive Caucus Center, which um, we established a, a couple of years ago and has been doing fantastic work. And Representative, there are clearly those insider, outsider tensions across American politics. And when you look at the issue of health care, I was covering you just a few months ago when you were an advocate and surrogate for Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. You're one of the leading proponents of Medicare for All on Capitol Hill. You're now, though, inside a little bit, co-chair of Vice President Biden's Unity Task Force on Health Care. After going through that process with him and helping him on his health care platform, should progressives be satisfied with the Biden campaign or should they be a little suspicious? 
Well, I don't think it's a, it, as clear cut as, as satisfied or suspicious. I would like to say that you know our movement for justice is long, and and uh, that that. Uh, arc of the moral universe is long, but we are trying to bend it towards justice more quickly. Um, and so when Senator Sanders asked me to be uh, the co-chair for the Sanders side of the unity task forces, there are three Sanders representatives and five Biden representatives on the task force, many friends of mine on the Biden side. Um, and I would say that we did a lot of good work together to really push the vice president's healthcare platform much further than it's been before, to take elements of Medicare for all and put it into the platform, things like a much expanded public option, not our first choice by any means. Um, however, getting more and more people onto government-funded health care um, and assured health care that you don't lose when you lose your job, the way that 27 million Americans have done. Nobody is making the argument, Bob, anymore for uh, the fact that employer-covered healthcare provides so much choice. In fact, we were able to get into the healthcare platform for the vice president um, the idea that we would untether employer healthcare uh, or healthcare from jobs. And so um, we're not ending that. That would be my preference. But what we are doing is saying if you lose your job, you will automatically have access to this government-administered, Medicare-administered public option. It will not be administered by private insurance companies. That was something else we put in writing uh, in, in the ultimate recommendations that the task force came out with and that Vice President Biden agreed to. So we have continued to take many elements of the Medicare, my Medicare for All bill, which uh, I was so proud got, you know, its first hearings ever in the history of Congress on Medicare for All happened last year. Um, the idea of long-term supports and services, the Biden platform now includes uh, the creation of 600,000 new home care jobs, paying $15 an hour with benefits because so many home care workers don't have benefits. That's unacceptable. And it also says that we're going to eliminate the waiting lists of 800,000 people who are, who are waiting for long-term care and eliminate the institutional bias that exists right now for, for people to be in nursing homes versus to be at home with people that they love. Both are needed, um, but we were able to make tremendous movement on that. That was something I added into my care for all bill, uh, long-term supports and services. And so I think we've made tremendous progress. Should we be satisfied? No, um, I have not changed my view on Medicare for all, and I am going to continue to fight for Medicare for all. But what I have said and what I will continue to say, and I will go out on the road and campaign for the vice president, because I believe this is true, is that no progress, not on healthcare, not on respecting the constitution, not on the judiciary, not on immigration, not on economics, no progress is possible with Donald Trump in the White House. So we need to elect Joe Biden. We need to be by his side, pushing for him to be the next president of the United States. And sometimes we need to be out front in front of him, continuing to imagine and shift the boundaries of what is seen as possible, because that is our job as the movement. And I've said that progressives, all it means to be a progressive, Bob, is that we are the first to the best and most just idea. And sometimes it takes time for other people to catch up with us, but we have to
work to build the movement so that we can make those things possible. Same way we did with a $15 minimum wage, the same way we did, frankly, with getting uh, Democrats on board with comprehensive immigration reform, which I talk about in the book as well. Representative, you, you and other progressives clearly have a seat at the table with the Biden campaign. You've influenced them on health care. Who are you and other progressives in Congress calling on the vice president to pick as his running mate? That's the number one question I'm getting every day, and I've managed to dodge it, and I will dodge it again by saying that there are some really great candidates. Um, I'm glad he's committed to choosing a woman. Um, and what I am looking for is the Should qualities in that person. I want. I think I want uh, somebody who absolutely understands the intersectionality between race, class, and gender. That, you know, I've said before, I, I, I am not a woman on Monday, an immigrant on Tuesday, a mom on Wednesday, and a worker on Thursday. I'm all of those things all of the time. And I think the more the person brings that analysis to what they do, the better it is. But it also has to be willing to be bold in this moment because let's be clear we have had 135,000 Americans die in just four and a half months we have had over 45 million Americans file unemployment claims in that same period of time we have unbelievable racial inequity across this country with black Americans four times as likely to die as white Americans, Latinos nine times as likely to be, seven times as likely to be hospitalized, nine times as likely to get cases of COVID. That is unacceptable. And even before the pandemic hit, Bob, we had 60% of Americans who didn't even have 400 bucks in their bank account. So this is not a time for small change. This is a time for bold uh, changes and for the government to step up and really help America recover from Donald Trump, but also chart a different course that takes care of the symptoms that were present even before COVID hit and to deal with the worst inequity um, and inequality and wealth and income that we've had since the 1920s. So that requires a bold presidency, and I want the vice president to be a bold progressive who isn't afraid of making the kinds of changes that we will need to take and taking on the special interests we will need to take on. Representative, if Vice President Biden wins the White House, the vice president would not be the only person at his side. He would also work with leaders in Congress on setting the agenda. Are you considering a run for the House leadership after the election? You know, um, I talk about this in my book. I've never been a planner when it comes to my own path forward. I've always been a planner when it comes to organizing campaigns and how we get what we want. But I'm somebody who really puts everything I have into the job I'm doing. And when an opportunity arises, I look at it from the perspective of, can it help me achieve the goals of the policy change I'm trying to get to. So um, I, I will you know, think about those opportunities as they come up, but right now there is so much devastation, um, police brutality, anti-blackness, economic devastation, healthcare devastation. I am 150% focused on how to deal with that and how to give some to the millions of Americans across this country that are suffering. Just a quick follow-up on that representative, you support Vice President Biden's campaign, 
Do you support Speaker Pelosi for another term as Speaker? Well, right now, you know, I, I supported Speaker Pelosi this time around. We bargained hard to get some very important um, uh, concessions to progressives made, including getting, a pro, you know, the proportional number of progressives onto key committees, A-list committees. So when people see AOC or, or uh, Rashida Tlaib or Katie Porter on financial services, know that the Congressional Progressive Caucus helped to make that happen. Um, and so I think that let's get through this term. She has been uh, absolutely the right leader um, to take on Donald Trump. And I, you know, I've been proud to serve with her. We don't always agree, as you know, we sometimes have to fight hard, um, but I have tremendous respect for her. And she is, you know, I think that she is uh, uniquely qualified um, to take on this president. She certainly seems to get under, her, uh, under his skin um, quite a bit. And I think it's because she's a heck of a lot smarter than he is. And she actually cares about the people of the United States and the Constitution of America. Representative, we only have about five minutes left for this conversation. Wish we could, uh, we'll do it again sometime. But just in the final few minutes, a few uh, quick questions. One, Attorney General Barr will testify before the House Judiciary. You're a member of the House Judiciary Committee. What do you want to ask the Attorney General? Um, I have a number of different questions. We are going through it right now, but obviously, you know, why he tear gassed protesters is a big one. Um, how he has used the issues or, or the resources of the Justice Department to advance his own personal gain, the personal gain um, is another big one. Where do you stand on reopening schools? I don't think they should reopen, Bob. I think we are opening too quickly. Um, we have we have not taken away the economic pressure that exists for things to reopen. If we had passed my Paycheck Recovery Act at the very beginning and subsidized um, the paychecks, uh, you know, and uh, operating costs of businesses across this country, we wouldn't be in this position. Not only would we control the virus, but we would take away the need for people to feel like they had to go back to work before the virus was controlled. Unfortunately, we haven't done that. Countries like Germany and France that have are actually seeing um, not only the virus controlled, but they're seeing people spending money and the economy recovering more quickly. I don't think that we should allow our schools to reopen and put those kids, those teachers um, and parents at risk as this virus is clearly increasing. Representative, we got a question from a viewer, Charlotte Jones Carroll watching from Maryland. She wonders, what are House Democrats going to do to deal with families and children uh, who, have, or, who are at risk of getting COVID-19 at ICE detention centers? I'm so glad Charlotte asked that question because I have several bills. I have um, the FIRST Act, which I introduced uh, in the House uh, several months ago to say that right away, ICE should immediately, immediately release all vulnerable populations, not only children, but all vulnerable populations. And then in addition to that, they should go through and do a case-by-case -case analysis to release the people 
that really pose no threat at all to public safety. Remember, Bob, that the vast majority of people that are in ICE detention have never committed a crime nor been charged of a crime. And even if they have, it's low-level offenses that are not public safety threats. And so we can release those people. We have excellent alternatives to detention that are proven to be 99.9% .9 effective and cost just a fraction of the money that U.S. taxpayers spend on these private for-profit detention centers. So I'm with Charlotte all the way. We are pushing to make that happen. And then, of course, once you've released all those people, then you might be able to comply with CDC public health guidelines of not having so many people uh, crowded up against each other, and you protect the employees of those facilities. Representative, you saw the tweet, President Trump attacked the autonomous zone in, in your city of Seattle as a group of, quote, domestic terrorists. Now that that experience is over the autonomous zone, do you believe it helped or hurt your own cause, the progressive cause? Oh, I, I, listen, I am a full believer in the rights of protest and dissent, and Seattle has a long history of that. As you know, Bob, we were the site of the WTO protests. We have had several um, occupations of, of, of buildings um, in and around Seattle, and it's been a very effective tactic. And I, I you know, I think that the anger that was a part of that really stemmed from the militaristic response that our police force had. I was very clear very early on, within two days, um, calling on the mayor uh, to to end the curfews, to take away the National Guard, and to stop, you know, turning out SPD to use tear gas and rubber bullets. In fact, there was a, a lawsuit, in, and there continue to be lawsuits around use of force by the Seattle Police Department. So. Um, that's what I think started a lot of what ended up happening. But I believe that protest and dissent um, is important. And I think that we have to respect the Constitution for those protesters. And um, I think that, you know, what they are pushing for is very, very important. Final question. We've run out of time, but sticking with the, I, the theme of Seattle, you've been a fierce critic of major tech companies in Seattle, including criticism of Amazon. It should be noted that Jeff Bezos, who owns the Washington Post, is the founder and CEO of Amazon. What should the next Democratic president do to diminish the power of those types of major tech companies, if anything? Well, it isn't just the president, Bob. You know, we are reasserting Congress's role in this. In fact, next week, uh, or the week after, we will have the four CEOs of major tech companies, including Mr. Bezos, um, as well as the CEOs of Apple, Facebook, and Google, in to testify before the antitrust subcommittee, which I am a member of. And we have to understand that um, exercising congressional authority around um, anti, you know, around monopolistic behavior and promoting um, the breakup of some of these companies has been very successful in the past. In fact, Microsoft has even talked about the antitrust lawsuit that uh, they had to fight and how it was helpful, even though it was painful, it was helpful to innovation. So we are working very hard on this antitrust um, legislation and re set of recommendations. This is the final part of a one-year investigation that we have been uh, undertaking into these tech companies and potential abuses of monopolistic power and anti-competitive behavior. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing 
Mr. Bezos in front of us and all the other companies and being able to really reassert co Congress's role to ultimately pass the kind of legislation to regulate tech companies the way the European uh, Union has done. Representative Jayapal, thank you very much for your time. And, and again, congratulations on your book. We, we appreciate it. Thank you so much, Bob, for having me on and for your great work all the time on reporting. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.